I mentioned to folks last week that we are going to be walking through the history of the Reformation over the next few weeks. So we're pausing in Joshua, and we're going to take some time looking at the Reformation. Uh, now, I'm not going to be doing a history lesson, although I will include some of that in these messages. Uh, but I do want to look at what Martin Luther, who is sort of the father of the Reformation, he gets credit for that. Um, we're going to be looking at some of his challenges to the Catholic Church. And we're going to be looking at the biblical basis for that. And we're going to be looking how uh, Christ has been magnified through these changes. And as Martin Luther went through Scripture and uh, divided it, and as he expounded on it, uh, what he found. And we're going to be looking at, his, at, his, at a few of his challenges over the next several weeks. So this morning we are going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. And so if you'd like to turn there, you may. But as way of an introduction, one of the things that I believe that Martin Luther really struggled with as his time in the Catholic Church and as a monk was the fact that as he was... Now remember, Martin Luther was the monk of all monks, all right? I mean, if there was a statue of monks, four monks, he would be a statue. And in fact, Martin Luther is a statue. They have made him out to be a statue. In fact, he has, he has acquired... It's hard for me to even say this without getting emotional. He has acquired the grand um, joy, honor, gift of being created into a bobblehead. When you become a bobblehead, you know you are something at that moment, okay? And Martin Luther has become a bobblehead. And so Martin Luther is challenging the church and one of the things that he was challenging the church with was this, is that it appeared to him that there was no price that was being paid by the congregation, by the church, in coming to Christ. Now, what does that mean? You might be thinking, well, Christ paid the price. We're not paying anything. Christ is paying the price. And you're exactly right. What I, what I mean by this is that it appeared that individuals were coming to Christ without sacrifice. There was no change in their life. They were coming to Christ, but if you looked at the before and the after, there was no, there was no discernible difference in their life. When you come to Christ, there must be a difference. Even if it's slight, it begins ever so slightly. And then as Christ moves in our lives, as we grow and we mature, as the Holy Spirit convicts us, molds us, carves out a bigger place for, themselves in our, for himself in our, in our lives, then our lives change even more. But what Martin Luther was seeing is that instead of individuals coming to Christ and laying their lives down, he saw people opening their pocketbooks and paying the church for the price of admission into heaven. And so there was no sacrifice, no payment, no price for discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the, the, the great missionaries, ministers, as well as a martyr for the church in the 1940s when he and the church in Germany decided to concoct a plan to kill Hitler, to stop him, 
He ended up being martyred for his activities, but he came up with this concept of cheap grace. And the idea is that we have cheapened the concept of grace. We have cheapened the sacrifice of Jesus when we come to Christ without laying our whole lives down. And so today when Crystal and I go to Danville and we uh, lead this worship service in Constitution Square, one of the things, Crystal's going to be reading a verse from Psalm 115, and one of the lines in that psalm says, the Lord is in the heavens, he does what he pleases. And immediately after that verse, we are going to sing the song, Take My Life. Because when we come to Christ, we do not say, Jesus, take this part of my life. We do not say, come Lord Jesus and take this little area that I have set aside for you, but the rest of it is mine. We say, take my whole life, take my life, take my hands, take my feet, take my future, take all of my days, Lord, they are yours. There is a cost to discipleship. And so I will just say at the outset, I will challenge you this morning, is that if you can honestly say that you have come to Christ, yet there's really no discernible difference between your life now and from that moment that you walk the aisle or you profess publicly faith in Christ at church camp or whatever it might have been at some revival, and if you can say, really, there's not been a big difference, my, my challenge to you is for you to really survey your life and say, did I truly come to Christ or was I merely paying the price of admission? And you say, well, wait a minute, we don't pay indulgences today. That was, a, that was a, a, you know, a, a 14th, 15th century Catholic thing. We don't do indulgences today. Yes, we do. We do indulgences even in the Baptist church. And you're like, are you talking about the tithe? I'm not talking about the tithe. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the idea of walking an aisle and saying a magic prayer and getting dunked in the water because that's what I was told I had to do in order to be a part of the church and in order to be in this Christian club. You see where I'm going with this? Is that those three or four things does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is, has Christ invaded your life and made you a new creature? Regardless of you walking an aisle, regardless of reciting a prayer, regardless of your baptism, has Christ invaded your life and made you a new person? Can you say that there has been a cost to discipleship? This morning's message is entitled, Turn and Flee. And I will read from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. This is at the very beginning. This is immediately after Jesus went into the wilderness. So he was baptized. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. So he has not yet began his ministry until this very moment, and I want you to see what the first words of his ministry 
are, is, are, uh, we'll discuss that later, Crystal, on the way to Daniel, okay? Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let us pray. Father in heaven, May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be with us this morning, Father, and may your kingdom stand out and become real to us. Let us realize that there is a cost to discipleship that for some might be too great to bear, as it was with the rich young ruler. Let it not be said of us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope you caught that. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach. And, and when it says, saying, what, he, what we're saying is, the summary, the thesis of his preaching, okay, was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the main point. That's what he was trying to get people to do. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if we look at Martin Luther's 95 challenges, that's what I'm going to call them. Instead of 95, most people don't know what a thesis is. Do you know that when I teach, uh, when I used to teach senior seminar, I'd have to teach kids how to write a uh, like a, a, a journal article or a journal pa- a journal uh, publication or a grant, and in those you have to come up with a thesis statement. It would take me half a semester just to get them to write what is actually a thesis statement. They don't know what it is. And for that matter, there are some PhDs that write journal articles that don't know what a thesis statement is. Let's just be very clear about that. But Martin Luther had these 95 challenges, and his first three are this. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said... Repent, in Matthew 4.17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's the first one. The very first challenge to the church for Martin Luther was that Jesus, when he said repent, he willed, he desired that the entire life of the believer would be one of repentance. Not just a portion but the entire life, this means your friendships, it means your, your family relationships, your job, your school, your entertainment, everything is devoted and committed to Christ. Your entire life. As a belief, when we come to Jesus, we do not get the luxury of telling Jesus take a portion. We say, my life 
my whole life is your portion. You get it all. You get it all, Jesus. Number two, which ties into number one, this word cannot, then he's talking about repentance. This word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance in the Catholic Church. That is confession and sanctification as administered by the clergy. What does Martin Luther mean by that? Repentance is not going into a little closet, seeking out the, the priest and saying, uh, Father, forgive me, for I have committed, it's been, you know, three days since my last confession, and here is my sin. And all of a sudden the clergy, you know, does some hand waving and says, child, you're forgiven. First of all, that clergy has absolutely no authority to forgive sin. Only Christ can do that. So there has never been, never been any type of justification for that little vestibule or whatever you want to call it where people go uh, to, to do confession. But the other is this. When we confess our sins, if I confess my sins to, to Crystal or to Christy or to somebody else in here, to Paul, whoever it might be, when I confess those sins, that is not the same thing as repentance. It is not. Just because I confess my sins does not mean that I'm clear. Repentance is more... It may, Now, confession may be part of repentance. In fact, I believe that it is. I believe we must confess. Even if it's just to Christ Himself. And so repentance is not something that man can do for us. Which ties into number three. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. And inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. So let me, let me explain. Martin Luther says, number one, we need to repent. And not just a portion of our life, all of our life. Our entire life is an act of repentance. Repentance is not something that we do when we first come to Jesus and then it's left in the past. Repentance is a daily activity. Here's what's interesting. Is that if repentance is just a, a one and done thing, if we turn from sin, okay, in one moment, and turn to Christ, you've heard me say this, that we turn and flee to Jesus, that fleeing or that racing to Christ has to be daily. It has to be a daily activity that we are continually turning our back on sin and turning to Christ. Because if it's not daily, what will end up happening is eventually we will start veering and turning right back around and heading back towards sin. We will turn our backs on Christ and turn towards sin. So repentance is a daily activity. That's what Christ was calling us to. A daily, a lifelong pursuit of Christ turning our back on sin. Second, that it is not something that man can do for us. It does not matter how holy your wives are, guys. We have to be holy too, right? And 
I mean, I, I'm just, that's just what it is, okay? And number three, it's not just something that happens inward. You cannot just feel bad about your sin. Oh, I just feel worthless. I'm just a sinner. I'm just a poor boy, nobody. Wait a minute, that's a queen song. But you get the idea, okay? We, we can't just feel grieved about our sin. We have to do something about it. Now, that doing something about it is not what earns us salvation. The doing something about it is a sign, it is, a, it is an indicator that we have been saved. If I could put it this way, when Christ says repent for the kingdom of, hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is saying turn from sin and turn to me. That's what Jesus is saying. But here's the trick about this. You are incapable of turning your back on sin without the power of Christ. You are, in, you are not capable of doing it. You're just not. And so if this is an indicator of, of whether or not you are actually in Christ, is that if you continually are going back to the comforts of sin, continually doing that, if your life if your life's direction, if your life, if the epitome of your life is finding comfort in sin and not in Christ, that may be a very good indicator that you are not in Christ. Now that doesn't mean we're ever going to find a point in our life when we are not in some sort of sin. But what we will see is that if you are in Christ, you will be in a constant battle against sin. For the Christian, there is never a point, even to the moment that you breathe your last breath, there is never a moment where you will be able to say that my battle with sin, earthly sin, is done. Now, yes, you are victorious over sin because in Christ. Absolutely. And that victory is won in Christ. But that does not mean that these battles over sin are not going to rage for an entire lifetime. Because the moment you say, I don't have to fight anymore, I don't need to fight anymore, that is the exact moment when the claws of Satan are going to reach in you. And by the way, we don't need Satan to go to sin. But that's exactly what's going to happen. It is a daily fight. And so let's talk about three points from this passage that I want to bring out that I think Martin Luther would applaud. Martin Luther died in the late 1500s. I'm just going to say he would applaud these. So, number one, the kingdom of heaven signals the sovereignty of God. I want you to read what he says here. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into the Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Most of us will just skim right over top of that because it involves an Old Testament prophet. We don't read that anyway because we're the church, right? And so I don't even know what he's talking about that. Folks, this is a critical, critical point in the gospel. What Matthew is saying in writing this is that it was God-ordained the life of Christ and how it would play out. When it says that he went to live in this place, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, we're not saying that Jesus was trying to contrive something. 
that Jesus was manipulating his own life and activity just so that he could fill an Old Testament pattern. What we're saying is, what Matthew is saying is, these things happen and they fulfilled what the prophet Isaiah 800 years prior prophesied about. What we are saying is that the life of Christ, and if we go back to Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 53, we can look through the gospel as it is in Isaiah, and we will see that the entire life of Jesus was committed to prior to his incarnation. We see that God's sovereignty in salvation is not just something that occurs in the moments of the gospel, but it is something that has occurred from the foundations of the earth. We see this in Romans when Paul talks about this concept that we have been saved, that we were saved, and our salvation was not something accidental. It was not something that was serendipitous. It was something that God had written in His book before the very first words were spoken, before he said, let there be light, your name was written. Your name was written. So when we come to Christ, that is not an accident. When we come to Christ... Jesus does not wipe his forehead, wipe his brow, and say, good, that drop of blood wasn't wasted. No, 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 no. You were part of the plan all along. A friend of mine from my former church, wonderful, wonderful uh, senior adult, didn't speak a whole lot. But when he, you ever know those individuals that they don't speak a lot, but when they do open their mouth, you're like, I better listen. And one day after Bible study, he came out because he had heard something that I'd said in Bible study. And, and, and a lot of the people in the room didn't really understand exactly what I had said because they weren't like systematic theology geeks like me. And so I said this and kind of everybody just kind of glazed over because I, I just feel like that's been half my life, people glazing over whenever I talk. But he apparently was listening because he pulled me aside, he grabbed me by the arm, and he said, I listened to what you said in there. And he said, I want you to know that I too believe that not one drop of the blood of Christ was wasted. And what he means by that is that everyone who is predestined to be saved will be saved. No one's going to fall through the cracks. The kingdom of heaven signals the sovereignty of God, and it begins and is played out in these pages as Christ is moving to these other areas. We just look at it as, well, he's traveling. No, that is part of the plan, whether it be to Naphtali, to Capernaum, to the Galilee, to down to Nazareth, to Egypt at his birth, whatever it might be, it is by no accident. Number two. Jesus and only Jesus is the true light. Isaiah continues to write, and Matthew quotes him saying this, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. When we claim that the church or a man or a woman or a body of human beings have power over our own salvation, whether it be by an indulgence, a sacrament, some sort of prayer, some sort of ritual, whatever it might be, when we claim that we can do something for our salvation, what we are doing is stealing the glory from Christ, and we are saying that Jesus is a light, but he's not the only light. And what Isaiah is saying is that we all were walking in darkness, but these people who were walking in darkness at the coming of Christ have now seen a great light. Jesus, after his temptation, is moving by way of God's providence to this new land. And in this land, the people are walking in darkness. But Isaiah writes, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And Jesus, in the, book of John, in the Gospel of John, says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Because for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And that is Christ. Christ is the light of the world. And might I add, He is the only light of the world. Now you might say, well, what about the church? Isn't there a passage where it says that we are the salt and the light? Isn't that, isn't that And I would say, it does say that. I'm not being contrary to what Scripture says. But the only reason that we can claim to be the light of the world is because the Holy Spirit living in us helps us to produce that light. We are not some sort of, uh, some sort of energy, uh, body of energy, like where fusion has happened, where we're creating our own light. All right, We're not an incandescent light bulb, folks. The only reason that we have any light emitting from us is because of Christ. And sometimes we see that meme saying that Jesus is the sun and we are the moon. And the only reason the moon shines is because the moon is reflecting the light of the sun, right? Well, here's the truth. That is true. It's true. That, I mean, why can you see the moon in the night? It's because the sun is shining. It hits the face of the moon and it reflects that light. That's why you can see it. We are the same way. Jesus and only Jesus is the light of the world. And so if any man, if any institution would come to you and say, I bring you salvation, what I would say is turn and flee. Turn and flee. But if they say, I am coming to you and I am pointing you to the one who offers salvation... then listen as if your life depended upon it. And that's what we are. We are bearers of good news. And the good news is that the light of the world has dawned and is shining on people walking in darkness. And we are the ones reflecting that light so that people can see that light. But not for one moment do we say that we are the light. We say that Christ is, is the light. 
And finally, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or if I might say this, turn from sin and turn to Christ. I, I want to challenge you over the next week, okay? I just want to challenge you to daily, more than daily, regularly throughout your day, I want you to think about what Christ would will for you in your life. Like, think about it. Go through your day. And as you're going through your day, ponder, is this what Christ would have me do? Now, if you, if you tell me, you know, like, well... Pastor, I thought about that, and I did what you said, and I pondered about whether or not Christ would want me to go to my job. And I just don't think he does want me to go to my job today. That's not what I mean. But you said, no, that's not what I mean, okay? Go to work. Pay your bills. Pay your taxes, even though it's theft. Anyway, I'm sorry. That's another story. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll blot that out of the sermon, okay? Uh, the, the point being is this, all right? Be conscious, like consciously think, am I, is what I'm doing honoring Christ? Because if you are like me, there are things that we do habitually, just out of habit, out of activity. And as we do them, as we do these things, we're not, we're not really, we just, they're just, we, we believe that they have no, they're morally neutral. That they're just, not, they're not, they're not sin, but they're not holy, they're just things. The, the problem with that is that Christ rules everything. So I'll, I'll share a silly thing, but it, it's not really silly because it impacts almost every one of us. When you pick up that remote control... Or if you still have one of those phenomenal God-ordained TVs where you have to go up and push the buttons on the TV. I'm old enough to remember that. I do. I do. Yeah. yeah. And you go up there and you turn the knob. Remember? You turn the knob on that TV. That's great. It was, it was real, Rayleigh. It, was really, it really was. It existed. Yeah. And you've seen the memes where it says the kid was the remote control? That's, that wasn't a lie. Kids were remote. Remember those TVs that were also the wooden cabinet that you had to have a forklift to lift up, get up? Yeah, my back still hurts, all right? I was the forklift, all right? But in all seriousness, those remote controls, when you turn that on, even what comes on that screen is a reflection of where our priorities are. I know I'm stepping on my own toes here. I really am. I really, really am. But when we watch something, when we are entertained by something, have you ever just sat there and like thought, should I really be, be filling my mind with this? Should I really? So I'll, I'll, I'll share just, I'll share something with you today. I'm not going to name the show. But there's a show that you can stream that is very popular. 
very, very popular. I read the reviews. I knew what was in the show, all right? And just so you know, the, like the, the, the um, I don't know what you call it, but the, 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 the content of the show, like what it was about and all the stuff in it, was like right up my alley. You know, I'm like, this is great. This is just, it wasn't a documentary, so stop making fun of me. But I mean, it was, it was great, okay? I was really looking forward to it. And, but then I, re- I was like, I can't watch it. I'm not going to watch I, I read the reviews, and I, I was like, I don't want to I don't, I don't fill my head with that. And then I was like, you know what? I've heard a lot of people. I, and see, now I'm trying to justify stuff, right? I've heard a lot of people, even people in the church, say they've been watching this said show. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to watch it. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna tr- I'll just try it out. I'll just try it out. And so I tried it out. And so as I'm sitting there watching, I'm like, ooh, ooh. Well, let me try a second episode. <laughs> I got to episode five, I believe, before I finally said, there is a reason why I wasn't watching this. There was a reason why I wasn't watching this. And you say, but it's good and it's fun and it's, you know, and all that. But my question to you is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? My point in that is not to put on a guilt trip on you, but if you go on a guilt trip, that's, I'm, that's just on you, all right? Because I am as well. What I do want to say, though, is that even our entertainment choices have some sort of reflection about where our priorities are. Now, that doesn't mean I'm ever, never going to watch a, a movie that has something in it that I probably shouldn't watch, and maybe I know it's in there, or maybe it doesn't, so I'm not perfect in that re- uh, even these, you can even watch a PG movie now. <laughs> you can't, like, oh my gosh, that's a Disney movie. What's going on? What's going on there? Right? Like in the 80s, there's cartoons with things written in the clouds, apparently. I didn't know that. The Little Mermaid's no longer sanctified. I don't get it. Anyway, and I love The Little Mermaid. But even what we watch is a reflection of where our priorities are. And so when we turn our we turn to Christ and when we give our lives to Jesus, it's not just part of our lives. It is our whole life. It's every bit of it. And is it a sacrifice? Yeah, it's a sacrifice. And you say, oh my gosh, you're asking me to sacrifice even my TV watching? That is such a first world thing to feel bad about. Like, oh my gosh, i got to sacrifice one of my 15 streaming channels? Are you kidding me? I think you'll be all right. So this week, I want to challenge you. In everything that you do, think about this. Are we turning from sin and turning to Christ? Or are we remaining in sin and embracing sin, even in a small area of our life? Even if a, in a small area of our life. Because I will tell you, if 95% of your life is all about Jesus, and you have 5% over here reserved, For your coddled sin, that is 5% too much. That's 5% too much. (laughs) Some of you right now might be thinking, he knows what I'm watching on Netflix. He's got my my Netflix library. No, I know what everybody's watching on Netflix because I watch it too. 
I'm the same guy that has 10 different streaming channels, and the only one that's holy is my outdoor TV where they're killing animals. Sorry, Sue. But, I mean, <laughs> let us turn our lives over to Christ wholly and fully and be able to say in complete honesty, say, Lord, take my life, my whole life, and if that means that you rip some entertainment choices from me, if it means you rip away some relationships from me, if that means you rip something that seems vital to me, if you rip it from me for the sake of my life in Christ, then Father, rip it away from me. Because here's what I will say, is that if Christ is ripping something away from you so that you can be closer to Him, then it's worth it. And it wasn't that vital to begin with. Let him rip it away. Because when, when the Lord said, if your right eye makes you sin, pluck it out. Because it would be better to go into eternity blind than go to hell. Or if he says, if your right hand makes you sin, cut it off. Because it would be better to go into heaven lame than to go to hell a whole man. Here's the thing. Is your eyes and your hands are not vital for your eternity. But your soul is. Christ is. So give it to him. Turn from sin. All sin. And flee. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it too. I'm going to, you know. and and We've been watching Everybody Loves Raymond. Which was for like the last three years, I think. And um, that's what it seems. And we've watched it ten times. And I, I, I don't know, I think it's holy. But now I'm going to be watching that, and I'm like, God, Marie Barone. Gosh. I just don't know. Turn to Jesus in every aspect. You might say, I've been walking this life for a long, long time. I don't know if I can turn anymore. Keep turning. Keep racing. Keep running. Keep running to Christ. The journey's not over. The journey is not over until you breathe your last. When you breathe your last, you're going to see Christ. And you know what? Here's what's great. You've been running your entire life, building up this endurance, running to Jesus. And when you breathe your last breath, you know what you get to do? You get to run to Jesus. And he is there at the finish line to embrace you. And at that point, you can rest. And there is rest at the end of this line. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we love you and we do give you all the glory. Help us to run this race and not grow weary. Help us to turn to Christ in all that we do. Help us to give you our whole lives, not just part of it. Help us to see what is sin. Help us to see what is holy. And help us to take joy in all that you have for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.